Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview psychologist Jesse Graham. If you're just looking in terms of belief, it's like, well, there are these, you know, absurd beliefs and there's no evidence for them. So why do people have these these crazy beliefs? And I think, you know, looking at the sort of social aspects of religion helps answer that question. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Jesse Graham is just completing his PhD with the University of Virginia and in the fall will begin as a professor of psychology at the University of Southern California. He is best known for his research in moral psychology, a field that often interacts with moral philosophy. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Jesse, you've done a lot of research on the psychology of moral judgment. What are some of the big questions that motivate your research? Yeah, well, I, I guess the big question that motivates all moral psychologists is just how do people make moral judgments? You know, what are the processes of moral judgments? How are people's moral judgments affected by situational or emotional factors? Specifically, I'm really interested in moral disagreements, both between individuals and between groups. Uh, so I'm really interested in how morality can mean different things to different people and how the kinds of concerns that people have can vary across cultures and ideologies. So a lot of the work that I've done is is looking at moral disagreements between, say, liberals and conservatives. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been a lot of interesting work in moral psychology and sort of on the flip side of, of the field, so, uh, experimental philosophy lately. Mm -hmm. Outside of your own work, could you give us a sense of what some of the most interesting findings outside of your own work have been in these fields? It's a really exciting time to be working in morality. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that so many of these different fields are coming together in a way that I, I think they haven't before. And experimental philosophy is, is a great example of that, where uh, you know it seems like philosophers are, are really getting interested in taking a sort of experimental approach that psychologists would take. And you're seeing a lot of collaborations between philosophers and psychologists. We have a social psychology conference every year. And, you know, I've been going to this conference for a few years, and it seems like every year there's more and more morality stuff being presented at the conference, and I'm seeing more and more people from other fields showing up to the conference. So you'll, you'll see people like Josh Noeb from philosophy or mm -hmm. uh, Dan Fessler from anthropology, you know, so, so people from different fields coming together. Yeah, so there's just a lot of great work. I was actually just at a conference in Israel which is now my my favorite conference that I've ever been to, one, because they flew us out to Israel, but also because the entire conference was on the topic of morality. And so every topic was, uh, you know, just fascinating to me because that's that's my field. One of the talks that I thought was really interesting was by Benoit Monin, who's at the business school at Stanford. And he talked about his work on moral credentials, which is this idea that if you act moral uh, in, in one setting, you sort of give yourself some moral credits and are a little bit more lax with yourself in another setting. And so, <laughs> so one of the studies um, that I think was actually done by, by somebody else, but they went to very liberal protesters. And this was during the, the Bush administration, uh, Bush too. And it was, uh, you know, one of these like world trade organization conferences. And, and so there are all these people protesting and, and how terrible it was. And so these are very liberal people 
And one group is randomly assigned to be given the opportunity to express their views about George W. Bush. And so they were able to say how horrible George W. Bush was and how he was a terrible president. And he was doing all these awful things in the world. And then the control group wasn't given that opportunity. And then both groups were given a sort of measure of uh, sexist attitudes. And the group that was given the opportunity to express how terrible George W. Bush was, uh, was actually more sexist on this subsequent task. And so the idea is that they huh. were able to establish their, their sort of uh, liberal moral credentials by talking about how much they hated Bush. And that sort of allowed them to be a little bit more lax with themselves and, and to express some sexist attitudes on a subsequent task. And so it's this, it's this kind of interesting idea is that there's uh, might be this kind of credit balance that we have. And if we do good on one thing, then we could do do bad on another thing. And it's sort of related way. Linda Skitka gave a really interesting talk on the dark side of, of moral conviction. So she's done a lot of work looking at, you know, how moral attitudes, moral opinions are different from non-moral attitudes and opinions and how something being a moral opinion doesn't necessarily mean that it's this great thing, that there's a lot of danger behind uh, moral convictions. And so she talked a lot about morally inspired violence. And, and you could look at things like suicide bombers as being very morally passionate about their cause. And so there's features of moral convictions that, you know, have this dark side that mm. when, when somebody has a real strong moral conviction, it becomes harder for them to talk to people with differing viewpoints uh, they become very rigid, um, and and it can actually increase their sort of extremism. Now, you mentioned Joshua Nob. Are you familiar with some of his work? I am. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, he's been coming to these conferences, so I've had a chance to talk to him a few times. A lot of times, it's hard for me to tell the difference between, say, social psychology and experimental philosophy because uh, we're taking the same approach, and you know, you have this sort of question, and it usually seems to me like the questions are arising from this, you know, rich philosophical tradition. And I think the, the people in philosophy departments are much more familiar with that sort of uh, tradition than we psychologists are. And then the idea is, well, let's let's get out of the armchair and, and do some experiments and, and see what are the causal pathways of some of these things. So, you know, it's usually some kind of experimental manipulation and then looking at how, say, you know, people's attributions of intentionality are affected by by some manipulation and that can give you a lot of knowledge about what are these processes and how how do we determine that something was intentional or not and so yeah Josh's work has been great in that and I I'm really heartened when I see somebody like Josh Nob doing work with you know I know he's done a lot of work with uh, Dave Pizarro who's a social psychologist and that I always think is kind of an an ideal combination is that you know you have the psychologist who's trained in uh, doing the research and doing these, you know, experimental manipulations and, and designing studies and things like that. And then you have the philosopher who really has the background in questions and, you know, what are the different theories and what would be the way to, to test these theories. And maybe all that's going on here is continuing the tradition of philosophers sucking up to scientists. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I, I think the sucking up goes both ways. You know, I think there's there's ways that philosophers can look up to the psychologists, but I think the psychologists look up to the philosophers too. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from each other. Well, let's talk about your own work. You helped to develop moral foundations theory. What is that? Yeah, so this is a theory that, you know, I've done a lot of work on with uh, John Haidt and Craig Joseph and, and many others. And the point of the theory is we're, we're really trying to give a descriptive account of the full range of, of the kinds of moral concerns that people have. Mm -hmm. What kinds of things do people morally care about? And one analogy that I like to use to describe 
what we mean by a moral foundation is to think of taste receptors on the tongue. Just as different cultures can create elaborate different cuisines based on a few basic sensitivities uh, to things like sweetness or saltiness and so forth, uh, we see different cultures creating these elaborate systems of virtues and vices that are historically specific and they're specific to a culture, but they're built on a, a few basic kinds of moral concerns that you see coming up over and over again in different moral codes around the world and different legal systems. And so what we're trying to do is, is sort of put together some of the information from the evolutionary psychology literature with anthropological evidence of different moral codes around the world and try to identify what are the foundations, what are the basic kinds of things that keep coming up that people are morally concerned about. Might there be an evolutionary basis to it? And, and is this sort of useful as a way of conceptualizing the different kinds of things that people morally care about? And so far, we've identified basically five of these foundational concerns that come up again and again, and that different cultures build their moral systems on these basic kinds of foundations. And so the first of these we call the harm care foundation, which is, you know, really in, in a lot of ways the most basic. It's just, you know, you're you're concerned about people hurting other people. People tend to morally care about who's doing the hurting. And then virtues would be things like compassion and nurturance and peace. And we see a lot of the origins in parent-child bonds. Another foundation is uh, we call the Fairness Reciprocity Foundation, and this would involve virtues like justice and equality and equal rights, concerns about unfairness, and might also be sort of group-level concerns about equity and, and people not putting in their fair share and being free riders and things like that. Those first two foundations are, are really well covered in, in moral psychology. And, you know, most of the scales that you'll see in moral psychology, most of the moral dilemmas that, that people use both in experimental philosophy and in psychology involve these, just these two kinds of concerns, basically mm. concerns about harm and concerns about, you know, fairness or, or justice. Mm. And so a lot of what we wanted to do is kind of expand the range of, of what we're talking about when we talk about morality in psychology. And the last three foundations are much more group level foundations. Um, and, and I think this is probably a more controversial part of the theory is because a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, these, these aren't part of morality at all. And so the first of these we call the in-group loyalty foundation. And, and this is, is trying to get at people's concerns about betraying their group or being loyal to the group. And so if you think about, you know, a lot of people, if you have a lack of patriotism or if you're, if you're not patriotic, if you don't love your country or if you don't love your family, you know, uh, above all others, then people can have a moral problem with that. There, there's something morally wrong with you if you don't have a sort of uh, in-group preference to some extent. And then another one is that's kind of related is uh, authority and respect. And this is sort of based on social hierarchies and, and people have a lot of moral opinions about maintaining proper order in the, in the structure of society and fulfilling your proper role in that hierarchy, whether you're the leader or whether you're a subordinate. And so there's a lot of things, you know, a lot of particularly conservative concerns about, you know, disrespecting traditions or disrespecting authorities seems like this kind of concern. And then the last one we call the Purity Sanctity Foundation. And this, this is a sort of basis of our intuitive moral disgust responses. And we see it as not just about, you know, physical disgust, but a, a kind of spiritual notion of, of disgust. This idea that we should treat our bodies as temples and not playgrounds and resist our lower sort of carnal desires in favor of a higher, more divine nature. 
Now, those last three, like I said, are, are much more sort of focused on maintaining the well-being of, of the group and not so much individuals. And so uh, what we're interested in is, is how different people can have different ideas of morality based on uh, different sort of mixtures of these foundational concerns. And for some people, morality might be all about harm and fairness, and the other three just don't seem that important. And for other people, the, those other three are, are really the core of, of morality. And so the idea is that different cultures will have values that come from these basic moral concerns, but they might manifest themselves in different details, like the classic example of one culture would eat their dead and one culture would bury their dead. And it was both sign of respect for their elders, um, right. but they just manifested that in different ways due to their culture. Is that right? That's right, yeah, and and both of those could really seem morally offensive, either disrespectful or or a sort of purity violation. I mean, right. we would certainly see it as as morally disturbing if if uh, we heard that somebody ate their grandmother after she died. Uh, but <laughs> but in some cultures, that might be well. This is a sign of respect, and right, um, and yeah. So it's it's not the case that we think, oh well, you know, all humans have this sort of innate built-in morality and that's going to manifest in the same exact moral opinions about all these different issues it, it really is much more flexible than that and that you know these, these are kind of the the foundational concerns that that people have but different cultures are going to build different ideas of virtues and vices based on these hmm. and you did mention that the first two the harm care foundation and the fairness reciprocity foundation seem to be universal but then there's some disagreement about the last three, the in-group loyalty, the authority respect, and the purity sanctity foundations. And I guess I can kind of see that because I, I think I myself would be part of a group that doesn't really pay much attention to those last three and doesn't think that they're very important. And that sometimes they would even be slightly immoral as opposed to moral to defend right. those things. And I think this kind of leads into the work that you've done on moral disagreements where, you know, I might disagree with somebody else who thinks that all five of those are really important. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm part of the same group. You know, if you think of academia as a group, I think academia is very, um, very much in the sort of harm and fairness. That's what morality is and that's what we should care about. Mm -hmm. And these other things, you know, usually the way they've been studied in, in psychology is as normatively bad things. You know, if, if you talk about in-group loyalty, it's it's not a good thing to, to want to be loyal to your group because that is connected to things like in-group bias and right. racism and right. prejudice against out-groups. And to a certain extent, those do go hand in hand. And so part of what gets tricky about, about studying morality, and, and, you know, we're really trying to be just ruthlessly descriptive. You know, right. we're, we're really trying to, let's get a complete descriptive account. What are people morally concerned about? what is the sort of range of, of moral concerns that people have. But the fact that the word moral can be used both descriptively and normatively, I think, gets us into a lot of debates with people. You know, yes. So a lot of people will say, well, I don't know, respect for authority, isn't that just sort of you know, authoritarianism? Or what's this purity stuff? Why are you guys saying this is moral? Why are you guys saying that this is morally good? And so a lot of times when I give talks, you know, I'll get a question like that. 
you know, I, I try really hard to, to clarify, well, we're making this descriptive claim that this is sort of the range of moral concerns people have. We're not making a statement that all of these are normatively good. And my own view is, is that sort of like what I was saying about the dark side of moral conviction is that you can have potential dangers from any one of these moral concerns. So one example I like to use a lot in, in talks, if I'm talking about the sort of potential of moral convictions leading to violence, is the example of the Weather Underground. It was a very, you know, left-wing group that was active in the late 60s and 70s and just showing how all of their concerns were really passionate moral concerns about harm and fairness. You know, they were horrified about what white America had done to the Native Americans, what white America was doing in Vietnam at the time. Mm -hmm. They were horrified by power inequalities between whites and blacks and between, you know, powerful nations like like the United States and and nations with less power. And they, they had these these convictions so deeply that they really did advocate a lot of violence, you know, in, in service of their cause. And they, you know, did a lot of bombings and, and you know, eventually even wound up with the killing of police officers. And and so, you know, there's a case where it's it's almost ironic because, you know, your concerns are about harm and care. And yet those concerns themselves can actually lead to doing some harm. Right. So, what are some of the findings of moral foundations theory about the way that different groups can combine these? Like I'm thinking in particular of your work on liberals and conservatives. That's really how we started, you know, and that was something that we had in mind when we were coming up with this theory is it, this was around 2004 and, and you know, so it's during a very heated election cycle and there are so many debates going on between liberals and conservatives where mm -hmm. two people arguing and the two groups arguing just seem to be completely talking past one another. Right. And so one of the ideas of, of these, these moral foundations is, you know, maybe people have different starting points when they're having these moral debates. And we're hoping that, you know, this sort of descriptive uh, or explanatory account could could help explain how it happened that people had different ideas of what morality is and how they were talking past each other in these debates. Um, and so, you know, what, what our hypothesis was, and we've tested this in a number of ways, is that liberal morality is, is really all about harm and fairness, that liberals care a lot about harm and fairness and not so much about the other three, whereas conservative morality seemed to involve all five of these kinds of concerns. It wasn't so restricted to harm and fairness. And, and so the concerns about harm and fairness are probably not as great as they are for liberals. But then there are these other concerns about in-group loyalty and authority and, and purity. And so if you, if you think of a case like debates about gay marriage, you know, for liberals, gays aren't hurting anybody by marrying each other. And so why shouldn't they have the same rights as anybody else? That's more fair. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much the end of the moral story. It's like, well, no harm is being done, and it's unfair to not let them marry each other. So what's what's the problem? And this is my own view too. You know, it, it, it's sort of well, what what is the moral problem here? And if you look at how conservatives talk about this, there are they are bringing in a lot of other kinds of concerns that e even if you don't agree with them are moral concerns, and that there's a lot of sort of passionate moral emotion about. Um, and so conservatives would be more likely to characterize gays as this sort of outgroup that's trying to infiltrate, you know, the straight institution of marriage. There's a lot of sort of in-group, out-group talk about, well, they're trying to take our institution and, you know, us, them kind of talk. They're, you know, flaunting their disrespect for traditional 
uh, gender roles or or you know monogamous relationships, and a lot of times gays are are being characterized as as being you know very hedonistic. They're unable to control these carnal desires. You know, conservatives would would make connections to things like bestiality or polygamy. Mm-hmm. I think in in part to give people a, a sort of sense of moral disgust. You know, so at a lot of protests, you know, they're they're showing pictures of gay men kissing to try to evoke a kind of intuitive moral disgust response of oh well that's that's gross or that's weird or that's wrong. Um, and that's that kind of purity concern that, well, there's something unnatural about this. And so it must be morally wrong. And these are concerns that I think conservatives have that, that liberals just don't to the same degree. And so when you have these debates about whether or not gay marriage is morally okay or morally wrong, they're sort of arguing from different positions there. You know, conservatives are are really thinking, yeah, okay, sure. You know, they're, they're not hurting anybody in a, a sort of physical sense, but maybe they're doing some kind of damage to the character of, of the institution of marriage or something like that. That's a much more kind of purity-based notion of what is wrong here. Well, and on the authority respect scale, I would imagine that we would include the Bible having authority here. That's right. Yeah. So that's another thing that, you know, for, for religious believers, well, the Bible specifically says in, in Leviticus, whatever it is, that, you know, homosexuality is is wrong. And so that's an argument. And and so, you know, if you're a liberal and you hear that, it's it's really frustrating because then you can point out all the other things that the Bible says is wrong that people don't feel morally passionate about, you know, shellfish or something. And, and all of the things that we would see as morally wrong that the Bible is specifically endorsing. Mm-hmm. But there's still this sense that, well, this is going against the sort of order of things and that there's a kind of natural order and it's, you know, it's marriage and it's one man and it's one woman and anything that deviates from that is is deviant. It's it's different and, and there's something wrong about that. And so we thought, well, you know, this, this might be a, a way of sort of understanding how these people can have such different ideas of what morality is. This might be how they're talking past one another. And it might be a way to get some sense of of understanding between liberals and conservatives. You know, I, I don't really have any illusions that, you know, any kind of psychological theory is going to lead to magical moral consensus between liberals and conservatives. But if you have this notion of what morality is and you think that's the only morality that there could possibly be, you know, seeing that there's these different ranges and that people vary on these different kinds of moral concerns might help you to realize, oh, okay, well, they're, they're concerned about things that I'm not really concerned about, but they're, they have moral concerns as well. And I, th- I think that can potentially help in a sort of dialogue between liberals and conservatives. Well, I would hope that it can help us understand that it's not necessarily so much that we're using different logic, it's that our starting premises are different. And so liberals are generally starting from a certain concept of morality and conservatives have a different concept of morality and that's where a lot of the disagreement is coming from. That's right, yeah. And, and you know, what, what they both have in common is sort of what's common to moral convictions and, and moral opinions and is, is that they do become very rigid. Once you decide that you're right, in a moral sense, and somebody else is wrong, uh, you sort of you dig your trenches and and you just try to argue them down. Um, and it, it's also a sense of why these arguments often go nowhere. On Sunday morning talk shows, liberals and conservatives can debate each other for hours and hours, and this goes on for years and years, and yet they don't ever seem to come anywhere close to convincing <laughs> the other side yeah. on any of these points. Um, you know, 
obviously there are exceptions and, and thoughtful or more moderate people on, on either side. But I think a big part of that is that if you're arguing about something like abortion, where, you know, moral stands on both sides are very passionate and very emotional and, and very moralistic, then you're not going to get a lot of progress in a debate between someone who's pro-life and someone who's pro-choice. Now, are there other ways since your original research that you or some of your colleagues have developed moral foundations theory or used it to assess other problems in addition to the disagreements between liberals and conservatives? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're looking into now is is just cultural differences. And it's something we've we've just started doing. We set up a website called yourmorals.org, where we have a lot of these, you know, a moral foundations questionnaire. And we're really trying to to make this, uh, you know, the, the sort of big data collection site for all questions of morality and, and moral psychology. And so we're, we're basically trying to put up every scale, every every study that's that's used in moral psychology, and in part just to popularize this this idea and sort of educate the public, but also to be able to have the data and be able to link all of these different things together. So you might have a tradition, say, in developmental psychology, where they're looking at Piagetian or Kohlbergian notion of the development of moral reasoning. And then in social psychology, we're looking at, say, the the influence of emotion on moral judgments um, and being able to put those together and see how some of these different factors of morality correlate is really important. And so, you know, be, because it's online, we've gotten a lot of people from outside the the U.S. Uh, we've had a couple hundred thousand people come to this website now. And so we've started just looking at this international data at, at first, just trying to see, well, you know, how well do some of our findings in the U.S. replicate? You know, so if we run lab studies here, uh, we can now try them online and see if they rep if they replicate with a wider population. One of the problems in social psychology and, and I think experimental philosophy as well is that we have very limited samples that we do our studies on. Mm-hmm. And so we, we tend to do a lot of studies using upper-class, white, educated university students because that's the most convenient sample for us for us to use. Yeah, we know a lot about university students. Exactly, right. <laughs> and they, university students might not be the most, you know, representative group. There's been a couple of papers looking at just how weird university students are, you know, both at, at this time in their lives, they're a very particular sample, you know, and so with with the website our website population is not representative by any means. You know, it's people that have access to the internet, people who are have some interest or some connections to this, what's basically an academic website. So it's not like we're reaching everybody with this, but I think as as the web becomes more and more available, it does become more, more representative. So what we started looking at in other cultures is things like, well, how well does this pattern of ideological differences in moral foundations replicate. And we, we see the same basic patterns in all these different areas of the world in the Middle East and Africa and East Asia, Latin America, that, you know, the more liberal or left wing you are on the political spectrum, the more you preference harm and fairness concerns over concerns of in-group loyalty, authority, and purity. But that's really just a first step because I think the people that are filling out these surveys online you know, they have access to the internet. We're starting to translate a lot of our materials now, but most of them are in English. So it's usually people that know English and that have access to the internet. So it's very sort of westernized segments of these world populations. And so we've started doing some field work now looking at very, very different groups and, you know, groups that you wouldn't be able to reach with a website to try to look at how do these moral concerns vary? And are we missing anything in our theory? You know, I I think one of the things about 
psychological theories or, or any kind of theory is that it's wrong. You know, all of our theories are going to be wrong and we're trying to improve the theory. And so we've so far identified five of these foundations, but I don't think they are the only five foundations that, that one could possibly talk about. We've sort of found this to be the most useful way of conceptualizing the range of moral concerns so far, but um, we're always trying to test the theory and to improve it and expand on it. So for instance, right now we're looking at liberty as, as you know, is this just a part of say a fairness concern? Is this, is mm-hmm. this, you know, related to some of these other concerns or is this something in and of itself? You know, one of the things that prompted this was, was the sort of moral passion of libertarians and the sort of tea party movement. And we've had a lot of libertarians come to our website and it's interesting because they are on the low end of the distribution for all five of these foundations. And we have, you know, dozens of other morality scales, and they usually come out at the bottom in terms of moral concerns um, or moral self-views. And so if you just looked at that data, you would think, well, this is a group that just doesn't have any moral concerns. And that's that's <laughs> certainly not the case. I mean, it yeah. seems like we're, we're missing something right. that they're morally concerned about that we're not capturing hmm. in our measures. Interesting. Well, you've argued that ideology influences not just our moral decisions, but also our process of moral decision-making. How does that work? Yeah, you're right. A lot of my work has been looking at, you know, the different kinds of moral concerns that people have and how that can vary by ideology. And I've started to do some work looking at how liberals and conservatives might differ in just the processes that they go through to make their moral judgments, even when those judgments have none of these content differences that I've been talking about. And so... Uh, the first study I did on this um, was looking at dilemmas like the famous trolley dilemma, which you're probably familiar with. Mm-hmm. In the dilemma, there's a runaway trolley headed down the track, and it's about to run over five people who are stuck on the track. And the only way to save those people is to pull a switch that will redirect the trolley onto a different track and run over one person. And so you have this moral dilemma where the only way to save five people is is to kill one person by redirecting this trolley. And when you ask people this, most people say, yes, you should do it. You should pull that switch. You know, it's, it's five against one. But then in another version of this dilemma, you know, the runaway trolley is still headed toward these five people, but now there's no switch. This time you're standing on a footbridge above the track. And the only thing that can stop this trolley is a very heavy man who's, who's next to you. So the only way that you can save the five people is to directly push this guy off the track and then, you know, watch him splatter on the trolley. And uh, that's the only way to save them. And when you ask it in this way, is it okay to kill one person to save five? Most people say no. And so this is something that's, you know, been of interest to philosophers for a long time. And and psychologists have done a lot of studies on this. There's a number of differences between the two versions, but one of them is that one is is just a lot more affective. It's a lot more emotional. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea of pushing somebody directly, you know, with, with your hands and killing them in that up close manner is just a lot more affecting than the idea of just pulling a switch. And you know that, you know, somebody will die because you pulled the switch, but it's much more removed. So we gave a series of these kinds of dilemmas. And there's a lot of different versions, you know, where you're on a lifeboat or you're a doctor in the hospital and have to take organs out of one patient to save five patients and all these different iterations. And so we gave a series of these to a lot of people on the website and, you know, found a basic political difference in that whether you're talking about these impersonal versions like the switch or the up close personal versions that are more aversive, 
liberals are more likely to say, yes, you should do it. They're more likely to take the sort of consequentialist answer and say, well, you know, it's five against one. So yeah, mm -hmm. you should do it. And conservatives are more likely to say, no, you shouldn't do it. The, the sort of deontological answer, you know, that some things are just wrong in and of themselves, regardless of the consequences. So you shouldn't do it. And so that I thought was was interesting. Another interesting tidbit there is that libertarians are more likely than both liberals or conservatives to say, yeah, go ahead and do it. You know, libertarians don't seem to have that much of a sort of problem with pushing the guy off the bridge to save five people. It's it's just more of a math problem. Hmm. One of the things that I did in the study was I did just a really simple order manipulation. So I would give people both versions of the dilemmas and I would make it really clear you're going to see two versions of these dilemmas. They're going to have the exact same, you know, trade-offs in terms of consequences, but they're going to require different actions. And so in one condition people would see the switch version, and then they would see the the push onto the tracks version. And in another condition, people would see the push onto the tracks version first and then see the switch version. And what we're interested in there is, is you know, are there going to be carryover effects from seeing one version to the other one? And so when the switch version comes first, you, you could think of that as a sort of utilitarian carryover. So you say, okay, yeah, I think you should pull the switch because it's a it's a math problem. It's five against one. Is that going to make people more likely to say, yes, you should push the guy off the tracks? You know, is it going to make you more likely to see it as this impersonal, just rational calculation and, mm -hmm. and not have this aversive response? And in that case, we saw no evidence that anybody had any kind of carryover. So it didn't matter if you saw the switch version first. People were just as likely to say, no, you shouldn't push the guy onto the track. So it seemed like that aversive reaction was not prevented by by seeing it in the sort of removed, more rational sense. Hmm. But in the other condition, where you see the push onto the tracks version first, that had a big effect on people's answers to dilemmas like the switch version. So if you first see the dilemma where you have to push the heavy man onto the tracks, and that's how you kill him to save the five people, and then you're given the switch version, people are much more likely to say, no, you shouldn't pull that switch either. And it's it's some huh. sort of like... I, I was referring to it as gut carryover. It's like mm -hmm. you have this gut response to the push off the tracks version and that carries over on and it sort of colors the the next version. So, uh, you know, it's like the switch is, is sort of morally tainted now. It's It just it feels more like killing somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like this affective process. And the, the interesting finding was that this effect where this gut carryover effect was stronger for conservatives than it was for liberals. And so that suggests that there's something more affective going on for the conservatives. And that might be a, a sort of partial explanation for why they're more likely to say no in these kinds of dilemmas. And so that's that's something that we're we're, we're still working on now. But it, it does seem like a an interesting political difference. You know, one of the most interesting things about it is that these dilemmas are completely apolitical. You know, there's nothing political going on in the dilemmas. It's not five Democrats are on the track or five Republicans are on the track or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, and, and there's no real content differences either. It's not uh -huh. like we're pitting, say, in-group loyalty concerns against fairness concerns. And there you might expect, okay, well, yeah, liberals care more about fairness and conservatives care more about loyalty. So you're going to see differences there. But but these are all basically, you know, harm-based dilemmas. And so when you see these different kinds of decision-making processes for liberals and conservatives, it's uh, that's what I think is really interesting about it. Hmm. Well, you recently wrote a paper called Beyond Beliefs, Religion Binds Individuals into Moral Communities. Mm -hmm. How does religion bind individuals into moral communities? Yeah, so this is a paper that I wrote um, with John Haidt, 
and this is uh, it was for a special issue of a social psychology journal on religiosity, and and this is a topic that social psychologists are are just really starting to get into. I think for for a long time, social psychologists didn't really touch religion, or, or maybe it would be included as a control variable, but but just in the last you know five or ten years, there's been a lot of work on looking at religious belief and and religiosity and and religion and I, I think social psychology is is kind of an ideal field to be studying this and the argument that we make in the paper is that the way we've been studying religion is a little overly individualistic and it's overly based on beliefs so that's why we called the paper beyond beliefs because we wanted hmm. uh, we're sort of making an appeal to social psychologists to be more social in in their psychologizing about about religion and so a lot of the the studies of religion you know most of which have have been very useful and, and very great but most of them have taken as a starting point you know religion is a belief in X, you know, whether that's God or the afterlife, but it's a, it's a sort of religion is characterized as like a set of propositional beliefs. Mm -hmm. And it's usually at an individual level of, of analysis that they're looking at. So it's, you know, what we call the lone believer, you know, the, it's, it's one person who has specific beliefs and the job of, of uh, psychology of religion is to figure out why that individual has those beliefs. Yeah. It's a very Martin Luther concept of religion where, you know, the main thing is this private drama about the state of your soul and the propositional content of your beliefs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's very rationalistic and all right, well, you know, where do these beliefs come from and why do they have these beliefs? And and so a lot of what we're arguing is, you know, with, with this idea of religions binding individuals into moral communities is that if you're just looking at individuals and what individuals believe, that is one important component of religiosity, but it's only one component and it's not even the most important component. And, mm. and we're suggesting that the most important component of religion in religious believers' lives is the sort of community that they're involved in and the rituals that they enact and, and sort of what they're doing with their uh, religious community. And, and there we make this connection to these moral foundations and, and look at how various religious um, traditions are giving sort of moral instruction in in all five of these kinds of moral foundations and so it's not really surprising that there's a lot of moral instruction about you know not hurting people and and being fair and just and things like that but that there's a lot of these group level concerns in in religion and that you know in general if you if you think about a religious morality it is a much more group based morality that's going to involve a lot more concerns about being loyal to your group over and above other groups and and showing proper respect you know for for god or for religious leaders as well as just for social authorities and uh, especially purity you know this notion of of purity and and being pure of heart and pure of soul can get very metaphysical very very fast and you know it's something that we think exists and goes on for even for people who who say that they're atheist, but it's particularly strong and it's I think particularly um, explicit with with religious believers. So we we try to trace out if deities seem to be very morally concerned about people, then what are they morally concerned about? You know, it's it's not just the case that deities and these different religious traditions care about you know that we're growing growing crops and and that we're um, you know, building cities or, or doing things, they, they really care about our moral lives. And so what is it that they morally care about? And so then we, we look at these different foundational concerns and we try to use this perspective. It's, we, we call it a social functionalist perspective is, you know, this is part of what religion is and it, religion in evolutionary history has helped us to survive at, as groups, you know, as, as very tightly knit groups of people. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of our morality has the same evolutionary and historical history. We basically tried to use this perspective to answer some some open questions about religion that other psychologists are looking at. So one of the questions is, why are religious people happier? And there's, there's been a lot of evidence from research on happiness and, and well-being that uh, religiosity is, is a powerful predictor of happiness. Mm-hmm. And that's over and above other demographic factors, you know, how much money you have, what your gender is, what your politics are, things like that, you know, but religious attendance especially really predicts happiness. And, and so, you know, we talk about it's, it's not just that having a belief in God can soothe anxiety, although of course it can, but that the real action there is, is going to be in the sort of community that you're involved in. And we also predict that the more you're in this moral community, the more active you are, the more bound to other people you are with these moral beliefs, the more well-being you'll have. And another question is is just, you know, why are so many people in the in the world religious? You know, it's it's a question that you'll hear um, scientists ask a lot because you know if you're just looking in terms of belief, it's like, well, there are these you know absurd beliefs and there's no evidence for them. So why do people have these these crazy beliefs? And I think you know looking at the sort of social aspects of religion helps answer that question. Hmm. And then another project that you're working on is ideology 1.0. What is that? Yeah. Yeah, this this is a project that I've been doing with Brian Nozick and Carly Hawkins and and John Jost, and it it's a kind of crazy ambitious project because our our <laughs> target n for this you know most social psych studies you'll have an n of eighty people or a hundred people or something like that, and our 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 goal for this study is to have two hundred thousand people complete the study. It's basically just a a giant you know everything but the kitchen sink study and we with what's called a plan missingness design so everybody who participates in the study they come to the uh, the website project implicit and they'll they'll do you know a 15 minute segment of the study and so everybody just randomly gets a little bit of the study and and a lot of what we're trying to do with the study is construct validation of the idea of what ideology is you know so we're we're trying to really investigate what is ideology and especially how does it operate not just consciously and explicitly, but also implicitly and unconsciously. So mm. the idea of ideology was very big after World War II. And, you know, there are these studies of authoritarianism and Hannah Arendt and um, Adorno and, and philosophers like that were, were doing a lot of work on authoritarianism. And that was kind of the big ideology that was studied. And then for a long time, you know, throughout the 60s and 70s, political scientists said, well, no, this this concept of ideology doesn't really exist. If you're talking about the, you know, top 1% educated people, the the elites, maybe they can tell you what their ideology is. You know, if you have a, a sort of uber educated Marxist who knows every, you know, aspect of, of the manifesto and can tell them to you, then maybe that person counts as ideological. You know, Marx counts as ideological, um, but nobody else really does. And so the the idea of ideology fell into disfavor, at least in the political science world and in political psychology as well. But then it's had a resurgence uh, just in the last 10 years or so. And a, a big part of that has been the sort of return of psychologists to studying the unconscious. And that was another concept that was very big in in Freud's day. And then I think scientific psychologists want always want to distance themselves from Freud. And so psychologists didn't really talk about the unconscious or unconscious goals and motives and things like that for a long time. But that's another that's been a, another big change in psychology and, and specifically in social psychology. And so now this idea that, you know, so much of our 
mental life and our social life is going on without our awareness, without necessarily our, our conscious intentions, then the idea of ideology is, has started to creep back into political psychology and the mm. notion that, well, people might be ideological and people might have ideological commitments and not be aware of them, or at least not be able to tell you, you know, what every point of their, of their ideological manifesto is. And so a lot of these studies, like the studies I was telling you about where we compare liberals and conservatives, these studies would have been more difficult to talk about or publish, you know, 20 years ago when the, the very idea of liberals and conservatives was sort of, well, you know, but who really, who really knows if they're conservative or liberal? And, and so this is the kind of thing that, that we're trying to look at. And so we have a lot of different attitude contrasts, um, a lot of different aspects of ideology. And, and basically with this project, we're just trying to figure out what ideology is and how far its reach extends. You know, do ideologies influence not only our political choices or, you know, culture war attitudes, like say about abortion or gun control or something like that, but might they also influence our you know, music preferences or our personality profiles or, or mm. things that we don't really think of as being, you know, explicitly about politics or ideology. So a lot of it is trying to see, you know, how, how deep are the differences between, say, liberals and conservatives? Mm. Well, I think this idea of an implicit ideology that people might have, even if they can't articulate an explicit ideology, it seems pretty plausible because, for example, we've got a lot of the people who are the most religiously ideological uh, really can't tell you anything about what the Bible says or what Christian orthodoxy claims, and yet right. we think of them as highly ideological. Is that maybe one of the motivations for this idea? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think that's that's very similar to um, you know if you're talking about religious ideology, I think I think it's the, the same goes for what we say about political ideology. And that, that is another a big interest of, of this project is, you know, are there different kinds of ideologies, you know, and, and another sort of more out there thing that I've been thinking about recently is, is there a kind of aesthetic ideology that people can have? You know, if, if an ideology is just a sort of way of organizing one's opinions and beliefs about the world into some kind of coherent worldview, then it, it seems to me like I, I have a lot of friends who have a kind of ideology of, of coolness. You know, they have a very specific idea about <laughs> what's cool and everything in their life has to sort of revolve around that idea. Yeah. That seems like an ideology to me, although huh. you never really see it studied that way. But it, it seems like that's part of what it is to be ideological is to have a kind of organizing principle for your life. So I think you could see this going on, not just in, in politics where most of the ideological work has been done or, or religion, but in, in other aspects of life as well. <laughs> I think that would be really interesting to study. I think you might be right about that, that people do have an ideology of coolness. Right. Like, uh, you know, albums that are ranked highly by pitchforkmedia.com are, yeah, are exactly. cool. And... It's, a, it's a very ideological website, you know. <laughs> and and you can, it's interesting because if you look at debates between people on websites like that and, you know, they're calling each other hipster douchebags or whatever. And, but there's a lot of uh, moral passion going uh -huh. on there yeah. that you wouldn't really expect for something that, you know, is, is presumably as, as, you know, sort of. Uh, just an aesthetic choice of of what music you like, and I found that in myself too. You know, with um, if my wife and I watch a movie and and she, I liked the movie and she doesn't, you know, it's it's like I'm morally hurt by it somehow, <laughs> even though you know 
for aesthetic things, you know, I think we have much different kinds of rules of, of how we use the words and, and how language works. And, you know, if it's a moral case, people are, are much less likely to say, oh, yeah, it's OK if other people have a different opinion. Whereas in the field of aesthetics, I think we most people would say, well, yeah, I like this painting and the, this other person doesn't. But it's okay that we have a difference of opinion. But it doesn't always feel okay. You know, I think there's still some sort of uh, commitment to to that kind of emotional connection that you have to an idea or an object. No, it's not okay. Radiohead rocks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the kinds of debates you see. So. Well, you've also done some work on the ethics of emotional life, or maybe the emotional life of ethics. Um, <laughs> what are some of the ideas you're working on that front? That was a project that it kind of started with with this idea, you know, coming from Kierkegaard that, you know, he had this idea of three stages of life being uh, aesthetic, ethical and and religious or, or spiritual. And, and that sort of got me thinking that these are th three realms where you do have a lot of emotion, a, a lot of passion, uh, like like what we were just talking about in the case of aesthetics, and that it seemed like, you know, emotion might be operating slightly differently in these in these realms. It's something I've been doing work on with Jerry Clore and, and also talked to Tim Wilson about it. And uh, it, it's one where I've done a couple of studies and the studies haven't really worked. And I, I found that that's a big fact of, of graduate school in, in psychology is that you're working on, you know, five or six projects at a time and you kind of follow the ones that, that seem to be bearing fruit and, uh -huh. and the, the other ones you, you don't follow as much. And, you know, I, I have a lot of flaky ideas that, you know, sometimes don't lead to great empirical results. Um, but for this one, what seemed interesting to me is, you know, Tim Wilson and, and Dan Gilbert have this, this model that they call the area model. And it's basically a model of, emotional adaptation that, you know, you have a lot of, you have an emotional reaction to some, some novel stimulus, some novel thing that you see in the world. And then you, you seek to adapt to it. You, you seek to explain what you're seeing. And then once you do this sort of explanatory work, then the emotion kind of goes away, you know? So it's like you see something and it, and it evokes a lot of emotion, but then you're able to go through some kind of sense-making process, figure it out, explain it, and then it's not as emotional for you anymore because you've figured it out. Huh. And what, what really interested me about things like aesthetics or, or morality or, or religious things is that these are cases where you, you do a lot of work, but the emotions don't necessarily go away. So take the case of aesthetics. You know, if, if you really love a Radiohead song, you know, you could listen to it over and over and over and it won't necessarily go away. You, it might be become your your favorite song and it might evoke a lot of emotions and so it seemed like something was going on there that's that's different and i can't tell you exactly what's different about it because it's something that we're still doing research on but this is it's the kind of thing that i'm kind of interested in is is looking at domains or areas of life where the mental processes seem to be an exception to what we found in in other domains in psychology yeah i think it's fascinating work that you and a lot of other moral psychologists are doing and i very much look forward to what you discover next. Jesse, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>